Welcome to GTR official Global Trade Review podcast channel. I'm Ted George, founder and chief narrative officer of Kleos Advisory. In 2019, I chaired the GTR Africa conference in London with a record 475 delegates in attendance. Our discussions were wide ranging, from trade finance and insurance to infrastructure investment and disruptive technology. Key themes at the conference included the role of China in Africa, the current watchword sustainability, and how the next generation of technology is changing the game in African trade. In this podcast, I've selected highlights from four of the sessions I chaired, which give you an idea of the breadth of our discussions. I kicked off the conference with a morning cappuccino with Judith Pryor, board member of the Export-Import Bank of the United States, or USXM for short. I started by asking Judith about the history of USXM in Africa, beginning with its first project finance in Angola back in 1942. So Ted's right. Our first project in Africa was in 1942 in what's now Angola. It was about a $300,000 project for a port. Uh, and since then, we've done over $20 billion in business uh, on the continent. Um, we also have a congressional mandate, so recognized by all, all uh, levers of government that we need to lean in and do more exports. And we've had that mandate in our charter or our bylaws since 1997. I next asked Judith to take us through the history of initiatives from the U.S. governments, from AGOA to Power Africa. There have been any number of different initiatives, so let's just go back to the Clinton administration. AGOA, um, which has been renewed twice since the 2000, early 2000s. Uh, the Bush administration had PEPFAR, uh, $80 billion in financing uh, to uh, help with the AIDS epidemic globally, but 70% of which was in Africa. Uh, the Obama administration, I, I was at OPIC for the Obama, during the Obama administration for six and a half years. Um, Power Africa was another initiative um, that, who, with, a, with a big objective, 30,000 megawatts uh, of power, 60 million people. I think they're at 9,500 megawatts today, about 57 million people, so not so bad. But the program still exists, and the new focus will be on distribution instead of generation and access. Then Judith told me about the Trump administration's latest program, Prosper Africa. This is the current administration's way of leaning in. So a whole-of-government approach focused on two-way trade and investment. New items will include embassy deal teams. Uh, USAID, our, our international aid organization, will have trade and investment hubs. Um, OPIC, which if any of you followed this news, and I'm not sure why you would, but if you did, you'd know that uh, recently there's been some law passed to what we call OPIC 2.0 or supersized OPIC. Uh, and that means uh, a function uh, with DCA, the credit authority from AID, is now merged with OPIC to form a new organization. It will be the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, $60 billion in additional credit authority. Um, New avenues for investment. For the first time, the agency will have equity authority, something when I was at OPIC, we begged Congress to give us and just never could quite get it over the line. Uh, and then a higher debt ceiling. So OPIC's old debt ceiling was $29 billion and now it's 100 With a 10-year extension of USXM's mandate being discussed in the U.S. Congress, 
I asked her about the African projects currently in the pipeline. Three of the first four projects that came to board for approval, which is anything over 25 million, uh, were in Africa. So um, two preliminary commitments, which will enable U.S. companies to continue forward with a bid process. One in Senegal uh, for distribution and off-grid in rural communities. The other in Cameroon for civil engineering equipment. The third project, which I would imagine many of you have heard about, was the Anadarko uh, LNG project for Mozambique. Uh, $5 billion, at $5 billion, it's, it's the largest transaction that the U.S. XM Bank has ever undertaken. Finally, there was a question from the floor asking what the requirements are for getting U.S. XM backing. So... We are the U.S. Export-Import Bank. It is a requirement that uh, a certain percentage of the content uh, for us to fund the whole project be U.S. content, and it must be shipped from the United States. If it's over 85%, we can fund the whole project, or 85% of 100% of the project, because we want you to have some skin in the game. If it's lower than that, uh, we can fund just the U.S. portion of the content. Next up, the debate. The motion before the House was, this conference believes that China's strategic investment in Africa is overall positive. What do you think? Positive or negative? We had two people debating in favor and two against. First up, Elena Wang, China economist at ICBC Standard Bank, who talked about the importance of Chinese imports and the increasing diversification of Chinese investments in Africa. Or the driver behind the bilateral trade is moving from trade towards, you know, more um, value-added goods like manufacturing goods. And if we take a look at the, um, you know, specific countries like Nigeria, Ethiopia, the single largest category of goods that's imported from China is machinery. And also that accounts, that single category alone accounts for at least 30 to 40 percent of the overall imports. And also in addition to that, we've got transport machinery taking up a lot of these imports, you know, um, um, in general. The infrastructure projects that China started to explore in in Africa is not only restricted within the railway, the land, these kind of um, traditional area, but more towards, you know, the more renewable energy diversified um, green sectors such as hydro, um, power stations, solar and wind projects as well. So the overall dynamics is really diversifying. Just to wrap up, I think 3D is really um, uh, deepening, diversifying and decarbonization is the way that I see how China and Africa's relationship is evolving and will be heading towards in the future. Next up, speaking against the motion, we had Elizabeth Stevens, Managing Director of Geopolitical Risk Advisory. Elizabeth took a slightly different view on how Chinese investment is benefiting Africans. Chinese investment into Africa has had the most positive impact for African leaders themselves rather than the hundreds of millions of people who live in many African countries. Um, African leaders obviously prefer uh, Chinese investment to perhaps Western investment because uh, China has a policy of non-interference in other states' domestic political 
arrangements, which perhaps is a fair approach, but obviously that's appealing. And they don't generally talk about uh, good government and human rights, so that can be appealing as well. And obviously China doesn't come with the legacy of colonialism as well, which perhaps can be a deterrent to some African leaders contemplating investment from some Western countries. Elizabeth also raised concerns about the quality of some of the Chinese infrastructure built in Africa and the lax environmental standards. Africa forms an important part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's infrastructure project to connect China, Africa and Eurasia. Now, infrastructure and infrastructure development is generally a positive for economic development across the board. But several issues are raised by the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, one is quality of infrastructure. If you're an African government who's taken on considerable loans from China to have new highways and other infrastructure built, you ha should have a reasonable expectation that those roads will last for the next 20, 30 or 40 years. But obviously issues have been raised in the past and to the present day about quality of uh, Chinese infrastructure. There's also a question over the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative on the environment and sustainability. I mean, China itself suffers with huge issues around pollution and poor water quality, and the Chinese government within China is now adopting quite stringent environmental um, practices. But these are not being exported 100%, um, shall we say, into the Belt and Road uh, projects. Now, the World Bank, for example, hasn't financed the building of a new coal-fired power station since 2010, for obvious reasons. In contrast, China is currently funding the construction of almost 400 coal-fired power stations uh, across the world. Many of these are on the African continent. Next up, speaking in favor of the motion, we have Calvin Walker, director at CWP, who gives a view on the history of Chinese investment in Africa. There's an old Chinese proverb which states, dig the well before you are thirsty. Now, having already spent an estimated one quarter of its trillion dollar commitment to building out infrastructure under the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese have certainly been digging. The Chinese have actually stepped up to the plate. They are the ones who've actually filled the funding gap, encouraged by Western prevarication. And through the Belt and Road Initiative, they appear to be offering an alternative vision of what globalization might look like under a Chinese-sponsored industrialization and digital connectivity. I would argue that China's investment in Africa has been undeniably positive, and for both parties. On the African side, some of the poorest yet fastest developing nations with huge population projections have received an average of $15 billion a year of Chinese loans since 2012. And that represents about one-third of total loans made in the infrastructure sector um, over that time. And furthermore, since going back further to 2000, actually 2000, about 25% of all infrastructure investment has come from China. Calvin also questioned whether African governments really are being led into a debt trap by the Chinese and whether actually the quality of the infrastructure is as poor as some people have said. Now, the Chinese are often accused of uh, leading African countries into so-called debt traps. But African borrowers are not forced to borrow from China. The reality is that most of the top 10 African borrowers from China are perfectly capable and have successfully integrated Chinese borrowing into their overall debt exposure and budget management. 15 years ago, the Chinese were offering cheap cash, inferior technology and equipment, poor procurement compliance. Nowadays, Chinese and developers and contractors are more 
accustomed to international um, procurement and documentation processes. They compete um, fairly in the processes, albeit not always on a fully transparent basis, except that. But they do have now have more credibility on the technology and plant side. They're increasingly capable of supplying sophisticated equipment, for example, on the uh, FPSO market, the floating platforms. Chinese engineering, whereas 15 years ago was rather overlooked, now it's deemed as essential. And I'm aware of current large loan financings going through the market where international major IOCs are actually insisting on Chinese banks being on the, uh, being on the syndicate. And finally, to finish off the debate, we had Robert Besseling, Executive Director of Ex-Africa, who alluded to a recent trend of African governments rejecting generous Chinese financing because of their concerns about the conditions offered. He gave the example of Tanzania. One particular example is Tanzania. China had pledged $10 billion for the construction of Bagamoyo Port in Tanzania, which would have become East Africa's largest seaport. In June, the Tanzanian government essentially said no to the deal. A couple of weeks ago, the Tanzanian president came out with a variety of very stringent conditions, including tax breaks, including various local content measures, which essentially now will kill off the deal, because there is no way China will agree to these terms. Robert also questioned the kind of investment that African governments want from their foreign partners. Investment, by definition, is driven by commercial motivation. We're not talking about charity. We're not talking about development finance uh, for, for building uh, uh, non-commercial projects. So any, this filters probably into any type of investment argument. However, in terms of Chinese investment, it comes with different terms and conditions. And uh, if a DFI or uh, a non-Chinese entity very often is involved in a deal, it comes with different terms and conditions, which will include local content, which may include uh, guarantees that ensure uh, repayment, that ensure potential more uh, debt sustainability, and very often may come with corporate social responsibility terms as well. And potentially some of the evidence that we've seen from African governments actually seeking these types of deals, rather than Chinese deals with different terms and conditions, means that from a political perspective, it is important not just to connect the mind to the port, but also to drive these types of CSR initiatives that actually benefit African governments from a political perspective as well, and uh, impact positively the, the, the problem we have across Africa of poverty and unemployment. We talked already about collaboration and integrating solutions for financing, and that's the key, I think, in this particular case. At the moment, Chinese investment comes very much with a closed-door policy to alternatives or seeking further collaboration. Bringing in Chinese financing with Western, other streams of Asian financing together might provide a more sustainable uh, way of, of financing infrastructure across the continent. So that wraps up the main points from the debate. Are you convinced? Is China's investment in Africa overall positive? Well, I'm afraid our conference wasn't. The final vote was 70% against the motion. Perhaps if the event had taken place in China, we might have a different view. Next up, we have our solar panel. Please forgive the pun. Profiling two companies that are leading solar innovation in Africa. Our panelists were Simon Bransfield-Garth, Chief Executive Officer of Azuri Technologies, and Henry Clark, Chief Financial Officer at Sunculture. I started by asking Simon if he could describe the solar market in Africa and the solutions that are currently out there. What's quite surprising for an industry that's as young as this is the degree of segmentation and diversification that's out there in, in the market. Um, 
So we have uh, companies that are coming out here from a sort of utility point of view, essentially providing you know, replacement for electricity. You have other companies that really couldn't care less about the electricity and are interested in providing consumer services that happen to be enabled by electricity. There are other companies that are essentially consumer products groups that are you know, trying to sell you know, a piece of equipment that will go in your house. So wide variety of, uh, of companies. And then a wide variety of scales. So you get products which are you know, little handheld, almost a torch, if you like, with a solar panel, right the way up to sort of industrial level um, uh, solar. And each of those requires a very different approach to the market. So there are 600 million people off-grid in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but actually, the range of solutions across those different people is really quite broad. I next asked the panelists if they could tell me about the journey of their companies and the solar solutions that they have created. First off, Henry Clark from Sun Culture. The story began in 2012, where Charles Nichols and Samir Ibrahim, two 24-year-olds then, um, identified a, a problem with smallholder farmer productivity and noted the incredible productivity increases that are available when irrigation is applied to agriculture, but that almost uh, no smallholder farmers in Africa were using uh, irrigation. The problem was that, that there were not solar or, or any irrigation solutions that were specifically designed for smallholder farmers. And so they sort of packed their bags, moved to Nairobi, and uh, began to investigate could they create uh, an irrigation solution for smallholder farmers that, that would make sense. So first of all, they got the, a $10,000 system down to a $5,000 system. They got a $5,000 system down to a $1,500 system. And finally, they got a modular system in, in 2017, um, which uh, could provide solar water pumping for smallholder farmers for about $500. And now Simon from Azuri Technologies. We managed to combine mobile phone technology and solar technology to allow people to pay for their solar in incremental chunks in the same way as you pay for a mobile phone. And the neat bit was that the cost of the solar was less than the cost of the kerosene and the mobile phone charging fees that the customer was replacing. So it was net free um, to the consumer. I next asked the panelists about their business models and the products offered on their platform. The key enabling technology, other than solar, is, again, lithium-ion batteries, as Simon mentioned. So this is an extremely high-power um, uh, system to attach to, to a solar panel. So um, the control mechanism and the software within the, within the control panel, as well as the lithium-ion battery, allows for a given amount of watt-hours of solar energy to get the maximum amount of, of pumping capacity from your pump. So sort of whilst we design controllers that can work without batteries, sort of you can even further increase the, the performance with the battery. Um, other key technologies, sort of um, we include IoT technology in our system, so we're partnered with Microsoft to um, undertake predictive maintenance by seeing sort of how is the pump performance. We can send text messages saying clean with solar panels. Um, we can connect up sensors which measure soil pH, humidity, and other um, key bits of information which in the future we can use to, to better understand our customers. Um, so that connectivity, whether it's um, LoRa, whether it's Bluetooth, whether it's um, uh, GSM con connection technology also plays a part. There, there are different products for households at different levels of income, but broadly they divide into two. 
So there is one set of products which is about providing electric light, essentially, and mobile phone charging. So that will give you solar light for eight, 10 hours a night in four or five rooms, uh, a couple of USB ports to be able to charge your mobile phone, a rechargeable torch, rechargeable radio, that sort of thing. So that, that suits a you know, sort of rural off-grid householder. Um, and that works out at about 40 cents a day, to give you a sense, um, which is roughly the same as the cost of the kerosene it replaces. Um, for a bit over double that, you get a 32-inch television with satellite with 60 channels of content. Um, and that's actually a really interesting step, because when we started in 2012, it was very much about replacing a kerosene lamp. There was no pretension that the lights we were providing were the sort of lights you'd have in a room like this. Actually, if you've got a 32-inch television and 60 channels of content, that's exactly the sort of thing I would have at home. So, you know, it, it is first-class technology now for people, whether they're on-grid or off-grid. I next asked them what other services and products can be offered on the back of their platforms. At the base of it, our, um, our mission is to increase the productivity of smallholder farmers. Uh, I think solar water pumping is, is step one. It's the, the easiest and quickest way to, to increase productivity. But there's an enormous amount of additional things to do. Once you've got um, access to energy for the customer, um, whether it's egg incubators, pressure cookers, chaff cutters can be plugged into the high power system. But also looking more broadly, there's a $25 billion financing gap where because um, uh, banks and other institutions can't see and can't assess the risk of smallholder farmers, they're unable to provide finance. So that's the gap we're looking to fill in. What we increasingly do is provide a whole series of services that sit over the top of that. So by being the company that's providing the electricity, the TV, the radio, the smartphone, whatever, to the consumers, we're actually providing that enablement that means they can access e-health, e-education, fintech, whole variety of other services. So simple example is we have a, um, uh, a health insurance product, basically a life insurance product. We don't offer it. We work with a very large company that offers life insurance. But it's a 25 cent a week product. And for 25 cents a week, as an insurance provider, you can't afford to find the customer, and you certainly can't afford to go and get them to pay you 25 cents a week. We already have 200,000 customers, and they pay us every week anyway. So adding 25 cents to the amount they pay us really costs us nothing. So we become a channel to a whole load of consumers for a range of add-on services without necessarily having to become a bank or an insurance provider or whatever uh, of our own right. Sustainability was one of the key themes of the conference. I asked both panellists, what does sustainability mean for their particular business model? I think there's kind of three levels for us. One is on the macro side. So I think smallholder productivity is at the heart of uh, food security for, for the African continent, as well as in climate mitigation. Sort of it's kind of front and centre in, in tackling those problems. So uh, ways to create sustainable incomes for smallholder farmers are, are fundamentally fundamentally important to those macro issues. From a, a company point of view, um, it's sort of the water pump's a sustainable solution to the resource available. And compared to a diesel pump or um, uh, more water-intensive uh, solutions, sort of we firmly believe are, they are. And then thirdly, just from sort of, I think, sort of critically important, is our, is our business sustainable? So the only, re the only way we can solve these problems, the only way we can increase um, smallholder farmer productivity at a scale that is even sort of vaguely meaningful is that we build a business model that's profitable, that's sustainable in the long term, and that, that works for both us and our customers. Thank you. And Simon? 
Yeah, so uh, we look at sustainability at a number of levels. Um, so if you look at it, for example, in carbon, we are net negative carbon producers uh, in that we uh, replace people who are using kerosene lamps and, and, and other such things. Um, but fundamentally, the key thing is you've got to have a sustainable market. You know, Paul Polak said, you can't donate your way out of poverty, right? You've got to create a, um, a sustainable model, and that involves investing in the infrastructure in uh, wherever you happen to be working with local people, building a sustainable business that's going to work on an ongoing basis, and not just sort of turning up with a container of product, selling it, and then going away. And so having a viewpoint that you're building something for a 20-year lifetime is, is absolutely key. I finished off the panel by asking them how they think solar tech will transform the African economy over the coming years. I think it's, it's income generation in rural, rural areas, whether it's food security, whether it's urbanization. It's sort of, these are topics that will be transformed by being able to, through access to, to affordable energy, to drive those incomes which will really impact those problems. In 2012, we were basically a torch. Today, we're a 32-inch television. In five years' time, we will be able to power with solar every routine device that you have in your house. So fridge, TV, light, mobile phone, internet access, fans, whatever. At that point, who cares whether you've got the grid? Next up, we had the interactive roundtable discussions entitled Spinning the Digital Wheels, How Can Africa Capitalize on Tech Innovation? We had four innovators who are developing models for asset distribution, deal origination, providing liquidity for SMEs, and KYC and fraud detection. After lengthy discussions on the roundtables, I asked each table to round up its key findings from the day. First off, Nigel Bruce, Executive Director from Trade Assets. We've had a really, really good discussion. I'm not sure we've got any key findings yet. Um, mm -hmm. But really, it's understanding the concepts and the value-add chain that we may have uh, provided or been, are providing to our client base. We're a relatively new uh, organization, but um, success-wise has been um, really good to start off with. Africa is, is new for us. So I, mean, I joined two months ago. We're trying to get uh, the business out into Africa, onboard African clients. Next, we have Lanre Oloniniyi, co-founder of Orbit Capital. We're Africa-focused, so Africa is not new to us. Um, we live and breathe it every day. Um, I think, you know, around the table is quite interesting hearing um, feedback from some of the participants about, um, you know, the, the, the various platforms out there and also the flexibility um, they tend to, um, would appreciate from platforms. Um, but also, of course, some are actually quite curious about the idea of platforms because it's quite new to their business world. and. Um, the fact that you know through our platform we are not only focused on sort of one vertical we're sort of building an ecosystem that serves everybody i think it's been quite interesting here with some discussions next we have raj utamjandani executive director of trade finance market i'm going to give you three key findings that we came up with right number one is the banking model in africa is not designed for sme support uh, and that leads to the point of in all the risk analysis maps, it's either you know, multicolored or uh, gray. And that needs to be looked at. Um, alternative financing models are necessary. It's essential to be creative and utilize technology. So start off with a blank sheet of paper, look at the problems, see the technology around today. How do we use this as a tool to solve those problems? 
and more backwards integration is needed on the financing. So for example, giving uh, or financing inputs to farmers, um, and that's a really pressing need, and it's a huge business if you look at the numbers involved. Okay, that about wraps it up for this podcast. Just to finish though, I'd like to focus on the word cloud that we brought up during the conference. Throughout the day, people were adding the keywords which they thought summed up what they thought doing business in Africa meant. And in the end, we settled on four words, which I think really capture what the African opportunity is. The first word, opportunity, clearly. The second word, patience. Patient capital, a patient approach to business. The third word, challenging. Well, aren't all markets challenging? But ultimately, the fourth word, exciting. I think Africa is an exciting place to do business, and I hope you'll be joining us at future conferences to discuss doing business there. Thank you for listening.